my name's Amy, and I have the privilege of serving on the prayer team here and the global mission sending team. Today's scripture reading is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 39 through 56. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. And Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is His name. His mercy extends to all who fear Him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with His arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has, he has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised to our ancestors. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. This is God's word. Thank you, Amy. <laughs> we are exploring uh, specific themes of Christmas from the gospel according to Luke. Themes which might seem familiar, but are actually surprising when you look at them in more detail. Last week, we talked about faith, and this morning, we're going to talk about grace. What is so surprising about grace? Let's pray together, and let's invite the Holy Spirit to speak to us that we might be men and women who leave this place in awe of and transformed by grace. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much in this season for all that you've done for us, that you took the initiative to rescue us. This morning, as we look at Mary's song from your word, I pray that like her, all of us would be thrilled at grace, amazed by grace. For those who have never understood your grace, may they understand and receive for the first time today. And for those of us for whom grace might not be as amazing as it once was, the troubles of life, the discouragements, our current circumstances have numbed us to it. Spirit of God, would you soften our hearts? Remind us of your great love for us. I pray that all of us would just leave this place transformed as we celebrate what you've done in this season. We love you, and as we open your word, would you open our hearts? In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. amen. Well, the great American theologian Al Pacino once said, I once asked God for a bike, but I remembered God doesn't work that way. So I stole a bike and I asked for forgiveness. 
Now, that little statement captures a tension that I think many of us experience when it comes to God, particularly at Christmas. Is God even aware of what I need? And if I need something from God, don't I need to earn it? And if he just forgives me when I don't, isn't he just lowering his standard? These questions are all addressed with one little word, and that is grace. It's also one of the most forgotten themes of the Christmas story, because thanks to the Santa myth, sorry if there's any children in here and that's the first time you're hearing that, you can send me an email after Christmas. But all of the songs that we hear that are about Santa in the Christmas season, all the songs that are secular, if I can use that phrase, they are all about merit, about what you earn or what you don't earn by being either naughty or nice. It's all about merit. And grace is forgotten, which is surprising because it is all over the text that records for us the events of the first Christmas. And it is especially highlighted in the song of Mary that we're looking at this morning at the end of Luke chapter one. See, upon hearing the news that God would include her in his renewal plan for all the world, that through her the Son of God would be born, Mary bursts into a song of joy. But it is a song that does not originate within herself. It is a song of joy that comes from the grace of God. In fact, this song is traditionally known as the Magnificat because of the Latin title given to it hundreds of years ago, which in English simply means the magnification of God. And as the title makes clear, her source of joy is God himself. In fact, I want to point out in this little song we're looking at, she uses the phrase, he has eight times. He has done this. He has done this. He has done this. He has done this. And we would do well to take notice of the grace seen in all these statements if we want to experience the joy of Mary. And there are three aspects of God's grace from Mary's song that I want to highlight this morning. And if we grasp these truths, we too can have a reason to sing. No matter what you're going through, no matter who you are, no matter what you have done, no matter what is going on in your life right now, you can have a reason to sing this morning. And so my hope is that we would, like Mary, be surprised by grace. And the first surprising truth about grace that we learn from Mary's song is this, that God saves us. That is the first surprising truth about grace that Mary identifies in her song, and it is that God saves us. Now, the opening phrase in verse 46 to 47 is quite literally, my soul enlarges God. 
In the English, verse 46 and 47, and Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Now that's an interesting phrase because of course God himself cannot be made bigger. But he can be enlarged in our hearts. He can be made bigger in our hearts. And this happens as we take in his greatness. See, I want to point out, this is what Christmas is all about. Christmas is about taking in the truth about God. The truth about his nature and his attributes and his actions. That is what Christmas is about. And I think this is important because all the Christmas movies that you've been watching, they're all about human nature, not God's nature. They're all about like looking for the best in humanity. They're all about like, look what humans are capable of when we just dig down deep and believe in Santa. Or if you're of the uh, Hallmark Christmas movie persuasion, <laughs> the basic plot line, okay, I've never, confession, I've never actually watched the Hallmark channel, but th this is my takeaway, that the average Hallmark Christmas movie is basically this, hotshot lawyer visits her hometown, meets her old high school flame who runs his grandfather's humble Christmas tree farm and is conveniently more attractive than the last time that she saw him. And all of a sudden, she remembers what matters most and starts treating people with kindness. Yeah. The end, <laughs> right? Oh, there's a plot line. Like, we ran out of Christmas lights. Who's going to get the Christmas light? Oh, it's the hot guy. He's going to get the Christmas lights. And then we all sip cocoa and we're like, guys, come on. This is what Christmas is about. Friends, it's trash. That's not what Christmas is about. Christmas is not about human nature looking for the best in ourselves. It's looking at the nature of God. We are not to look at this season through the attributes of humanity. We are to think about this season through the attributes of God. Who he is, what he has done. And this is what Mary's song is all about. Christmas shows us who God is, what he is like, and why we need him. So we ask, what aspect of God's greatness caused Mary's soul to magnify the Lord? Well, it's found in the title she uses about God. She simply says, I rejoice in God, my Savior. If you want to know the joy of Christmas, you need to know that you are a sinner in need of saving and that only God can save. It's a little different than the messages that we often hear in this season. If you want to know the joy of Christmas, you need to know that you are a sinner in need of salvation and that God has provided that salvation for you. See, a lot of people don't experience the joy that the Bible speaks about because they have a very small view of God. They say, I rejoice in God, my assistant. 
who I go to on rare occasions to kind of give me a few things that I need in my life to help it be better. Or some people might say, yeah, sure, I rejoice in God, my inspiration. When I'm feeling low and I just need a little pick-me-up, you know, I just kind of flip through the pages of the Bible, find an inspiring verse, put it on Instagram, and I'm all right for a few minutes. But that's not what Mary says. Nor does she say, I rejoice in God, my example, whom I look to, to, to then find within myself the strength that I need to go out and live the way that I should. But the truth is the world needs more than inspiration or an example. The world needs a savior. She says, I rejoice in God, my savior. And notice how personal the language is. She doesn't just say God, our savior, which is absolutely true. She says, I rejoice in God, my Savior. And so friends, I ask this morning, has this truth become personal for you? Because there's a danger within the church, or maybe you were born and raised in the church, or maybe you're here because your parents like dragged you here to first service against your will. <laughs> to say, oh yeah, we, we rejoice in God, our Savior, it's all true. But do you rejoice in God, your Savior? Has all of this become personal to you? Like, wait a minute. I need a Savior. And Jesus is that Savior. And I trust in him as my Savior. Have you known yourself as being in need of saving? Or are you simply thinking of God as someone who can give you a little boost for your life? Or who saves other people? See, some of us have forgotten that we were in need of saving. And so the joy begins to diminish. But the more we learn of him, the more we remember what we have in him, the more he is enlarged in our hearts and the more our joy increases. I would invite you over these next few weeks, as I suspect some of us will have some, some downtime, that you occupy yourself by reflecting on the greatness of God and all that he's done for you. That could be moments of, of, of prayer and reading scripture or reading, reading a book that causes your attention to, to focus on who God is. Because friends, here's the truth. If you spend little time reflecting on the greatness of God, then he will occupy little space in your heart. He will be diminished in your heart. And then don't be surprised when all the stresses of life and worries or all these other things seem more important to you than God. And then you show up on a Sunday and you're like, oh, this just feels so irrelevant. It's because you've been spending little time reflecting on the greatness of God. How often have I fallen into this place where I'm like, I'm focusing, I'm stressing out about other things, or I'm just focusing on what I'm reading in the news, or what's going on in a particular situation, or, or, or maybe it's a particular pain point in my own life, and those things become magnified. And then I wonder, why is it that I, I'm not thrilled when I crack open Scripture? 
because I've been spending so much time magnifying something else. And so I ask, what are you magnifying in your heart beyond the Lord? What are you putting above the Lord that you're focusing on, dwelling upon? The encouragement we take here from Mary is to focus on the attributes of God, the actions of God through song and through prayer and through scripture and conversation with one another. And the more you do that in frequency, the more he will be enlarged in your own heart. Let's say together, let's agree together in this Christmas season that we will focus on reflecting upon God so that he might be enlarged in our hearts. The surprising aspect of God's grace that thrilled Mary is that we have a God who saves us. Now, part of her amazement is not just what, in what God has done in general, but how intimately aware he was of her needs and the needs of others. So we say, okay, I know God saves us. It sounds pretty generic, but here's the second truth. The second surprising truth about God's grace in Mary's song is not only that God saves us, but that he sees us. God sees us. There's this amazement in in Mary's words that, that God knows her and that he would work and bring such salvation on her behalf and upon all who would trust in him. Look at verses 48 through 50. Notice the language she uses. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. And his mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. See how specific this gets? She says, I rejoice in God my Savior. And what's amazing to her about it is not just that God is a Savior, but that he is her Savior. That he has been mindful. That he's been aware of the humble state of his servant. See, Mary, we often forget, was from a poor, obscure family. More on that uh, on Saturday evening when we celebrate Christmas Eve together. But what blows her away is that God is mindful of her. She's not entitled. She's humble. And she says, God, you're aware of what's going on in my life. You're aware of my needs. You're aware of my my situation, of my state. If she was anything like most other Jewish men and women we read about in the Bible, then there are reasons that she could have wondered. God, are you aware of my state? Are you aware of what's going on in my life? Are you aware of my needs? Are you aware of the needs of our people? Does God see? Does God care? Will he act? Those are familiar questions. I would guess that we've all asked those many times. I certainly know I have. And we often come to the conclusion, has God forsaken me? Has God forgotten me? See, this is important because at 
that time, there were many in Israel who came to the conclusion that God had abandoned his rescue plan to Israel and thus to the world. At that time, the land of Israel was occupied and ruled by the Roman government. And all the Israelites are like, this is terrible. God promised he was going to bring redemption in and through Israel. It hasn't happened yet. Where are you, Lord? It's been a minute. A couple hundred years, in fact. If you look at the timeline of the Old Testament, and nothing is happening. This is true about the mindset of many in Israel at the time. And it was also true for individuals in particular. Mary would have gone about at times saying, God, are you even aware of what's going on in general and in my life specifically? I point this out because many of us are robbed of the joy of the gospel, the joy of Christmas, because we simply think God doesn't care. We think that God isn't aware. We think that God does not see. It's, it's not that we don't believe in God. It's just that we doubt he'll do anything. Or that he's too busy involved in other things to care about what's going on with us. And so the doubt begins to creep in. And for some, despair can follow. I mean, this is particularly true of this time of year when many are depressed as a result of their situation or unmet expectations as we head into the end of the year or family members you had hoped who would be there who are not in situations that have turned out to be much more difficult than you could ever imagine. Maybe you just look at the state of the world right now and you just think, well, God doesn't care. He's not moving right now. But I want to remind us that you are not the first person to wrestle with that. You are not the first person to think, does God see, does God care? Many people have. I was struck when I read this poem by Thomas Hardy, not the actor, by the way. (laughs) The poet who never missed an opportunity to point out what he saw as the shortcomings of Christianity. And he wrote this Christmas poem shortly after World War I which captures the idea that God doesn't see and that God doesn't care. He said, peace on earth was said. We sing it and pay a million priests to bring it. And after 2,000 years of mass, we've only got as far as poison gas. You're like, oh, that's a heartwarming Christmas poem. (laughs) But it's a very honest one. Like, really? We sing about all this hope, joy to the world. I ain't seeing no joy. His is a devastating observation which seems to come down on Christian hope. And yet when you read the Bible, you find very quickly that the Bible makes room for such honesty. We look in the Psalms and we read the words of the psalmist saying, How long, O Lord, where are you? Has God forgotten me? Which I find very personally encouraging. Because we're never asked to pretend. Christianity never asks you to pretend or to fake it till you make it or like, it's Christmas, I'm supposed to be happy. Like, hey, I'm miserable, but ah. Got a smile on my face and joy in a Starbucks cup. And yet inside we're like, God, you don't see. 
Do you know what's going on in my family right now? Do you know what's going on in my health right now? Do you know what's going on in my finances? God, have you read the news? Do you even see? Now, of course, he's God. He has infinite knowledge. But we can know something is true, but sometimes it doesn't feel real. And the Bible invites us to be honest about this. Because we believe the Bible is the most honest book of all. Which may come as a surprise to people who think that Christianity just can't handle realism. That's how many of my friends when I first became a Christian uh, treated me. They're like, oh, you believe in fairy tales. Like you can't handle the truth. I'm like, actually the Bible is the most radically honest book in history and on the planet. And the Bible actually asks the questions that we are thinking. Where are you, God? No doubt there are many in Israel at this time who are saying, God, do you even see? And maybe the disappointment has come to a place where you're looking around and you're just thinking, well, God has forsaken me. But if that's you, as I know it's often been me, we need to hear the words of Mary. See, despite the unique aspects of Mary's life and her situation, we should all be amazed that contrary to our speculation and often doubt and maybe even a little bit of cynicism, God sees us. God looks upon you. It's a beautiful phrase that describes his intimate awareness of everything that is going on in your life. He knows the health problems. He knows the marital difficulties. He knows the joys as well as the sufferings. He knows the unmet expectations. He knows the difficulties at work. And he says to you, I look upon you. I see you. The book of Psalms says that even the the number of hairs on your head are counted. That's how specific the Bible gets with God's intimate knowledge of your life. It is not as if he's unaware, though we often assume it. I find great courage and comfort in these words because From this beautiful phrase of Mary, it shows that he attends to those who are despondent with a seeing eye and a listening ear. See, it's one of the reasons I find so encouraging as I'm reading scripture. There's all these waiting periods highlighted in the lives of men and women of faith as well as the the nation of Israel. I mean, Advent is all about arrival and waiting for the arrival And just as men and women of old awaited for the Messiah to to come for the first time, we are in the position of history where we're awaiting for him to come a second time. But like those men and women before us, we say, God, how long? How long are you going to wait? Both in the world and in my life. But I'm encouraged time and again, the faithfulness of God. Right when people are about to doubt, God moves. He acts. When people thought it was too long, God shows up. He sees and he knows. How many of us need to hear that today? He sees your life. In his grace, he he knows you. He's aware of everything that's going on with you. 
And so I invite you this morning to, to bring your doubts to God, to bring your speculation to God and get specific with him today. And in a little while, we're going to have a time, as we always do in our service, where, where we respond. We set aside a large chunk of time in our service to responding to the word of God so that we can come before God and, and bring whatever we must before him. Today, it's a good opportunity to bring our speculation. God, I've been praying for this specific thing for years, and I haven't seen any movement on it. And as a result, I've become a little hardened in my heart, and I've become to, to speculate that maybe you don't care, or maybe you don't see, or maybe you're just too busy with all the other things in the world that you've forgotten about me. I invite you to bring that to the Lord today and say, God, this is how I've felt, but I look at your word and I'm reminded today that you see me, that you are mindful of me, just as you are mindful of the humble state of Mary. Bring that before God today. Be honest with him and be encouraged by the fact that we have a God who saves and surprisingly, we have a God who sees. But there's another aspect of grace in Mary's song that is perhaps the, the most surprising. It's one of the most unique things about Christianity, which for many other reasons displays how different the gospel is compared to any other belief system in the world. And what is that surprising truth? It's this, that God serves us. It sounds almost strange to say, God serves us. It sounds almost blasphemous. God is our creator. He is holy. We are to serve him, right? Of course. Yes, we are creation. He is king, he is sovereign, he is ruler, he is Lord, he is creator and judge. We owe our very existence to God. And our lives are to be lived in accordance to his will and good purpose. And yet, in one of the most shocking true story plot twists, the God who is above us has come to serve us. Friends, this is wild. The final part of Mary's song acknowledges both God's sovereignty and his servanthood in the same passage. Look at what Mary says as she closes her song in verse 51 to 55. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thought. He has brought down rulers from their thrones but he has lifted the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. He has helped or served his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised to our ancestors. This is an astounding passage in Mary's song, which, side note, by the way, shows how deep Mary was in the Word of God. Mary was familiar with the Scripture. She was familiar with the character, nature, and acts of God. 
And she repeats them here in in summary in her song. And on the one hand, Mary rejoices in the just, righteous judgment of God against those who exalt themselves against God and his laws and his ways. He brings down the proud, she says. But the same God, for whoever is willing to receive from him, he fills us and he helps and serves his people. Now, to be clear, all of this, this God serving humanity is according to what God promised to do, not what we want him to do. All of this is according, as she said, to what God had promised in verse 55. See, when we say God serves, or that Jesus came as a servant, he does not serve us according to our will and purpose. He serves according to his will and purpose. And that is very important to remember. And his help is good. To save us, to secure us, and to satisfy us. But the only way that he could serve us without lowering his standard of righteousness was by lowering himself. See, a lot of people, they they hear about Christianity, they hear about the gospel, they hear the Christmas account in this season. And they think, wait a minute, God just forgives sinners? God just lifts up like lowly people? People who've made mistakes? People who have transgressed his law? Like, how could he do that? Isn't he just lowering his standards? But friends, this is what we celebrate at Christmas, that God rescues sinners without ever lowering his standard. But the only way that that is possible is by lowering himself. What we celebrate is at Christmas is that God humbled himself. God in Christ came into this world lowly as a servant. He stoops down to serve us that he might save us. The author of Hebrews in the New Testament summarizes this beautifully in speaking of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 16 to 17. For surely it is not the angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. That is all who believe by faith. For this reason, he had to be made like them. Fully human in every way. In order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. And that he might make atonement for the sins of of the people. Oh, this is, this is rich. See, God says, I'm not going to lower my standard. That would be unholy and unjust for me to do. But then it seems the only option is to make humanity pay, but we could never pay. We've all sinned against God. We've broken his laws. We deserve hell forever. And so what does God do? He sends his son Jesus to take our place to live a perfect life on our behalf, to die a horrible death in our place 
for our sin when he went to the cross and to rise again for our justification. See, all of this is God serving us in order to save us. And the way that he does it is by giving us himself. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. The greatest gift that God could ever give you is not worldly prosperity. It's not like, you know, a romantic relationship or the ultimate career or the greatest amount of money. The best gift that God could ever give to you is himself. And that's what we celebrate. But the way in which he gave himself to us was by lowering himself for us. That's what Christmas is all about. And that's what I want us to be in awe of. The God who is above us comes down to us. And in doing so, he comes in humility and vulnerability. J.I. Packer, who wrote an incredible book called Knowing God, in his chapter on what we call the incarnation, God taking on flesh, he says this, it meant the laying aside of his glory, a voluntary restraint of power, an acceptance of hardship, isolation, ill treatment, malice, and misunderstanding, and finally, a death that involved such agony that his mind nearly broke under the prospect of it. Friends, Christmas is not sentimental. It's not cute little neon baby Jesus. It's God doing this for us. It's God coming and lowering himself for us. You're not going to find anything else in the world like this. The God who is above us, that he would come for us, that he would serve us. I mean, it's so magnificent. No wonder Mary sang. No wonder Peter, years later, with the other disciples around the, 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 the table of the Lord's Last Supper before he'd go to the cross, when Jesus puts on the costume of a servant and begins to wash the feet of the disciples, that Peter says, Lord, why are you doing this? That God would serve us. That God would serve me, a sinner, by giving his life is remarkable. And when received, it means for the hungry and the humble that they are filled and they are lifted. But not the rich or the proud. Why? Because the proud don't think they need it. It's not that they can't receive it. It's that they won't receive it. And there's a big difference. See, this song that Mary sings is a reminder of the grace of God. No one deserves it, but it is offered to all. So if you think that your seat at God's table is earned, then you either try to lift yourself up by your own good works, only to realize it's never enough, or you'll beat yourself up because you'll never achieve it. See, grace is highly offensive to people who don't think they need it. But grace is glorious to those who know they do. 
See, a Christian person is one who understands this. God does not bless us because he owes us. God blesses us because he loves us. And there is a huge difference. God does not bless me because he owes me. God blesses me because he loves me. Mary understood this. Do you understand it? God does not bless you because he owes you. Some of us, we, we come to God as if he like owes us something. Like we're a taxpayer with rights. Like, Lord, I did my good deeds this year. It's the end of 2022. Where's my stuff? You owe me this, God. I suffered a lot in 2022 for you and your name, and your kingdom, your purposes. <laughs> Friends, that is the wrong attitude with which to approach the Lord Almighty. God does not bless us because he owes us, but because he loves us. See, pride will keep you from this song of joy, but humility will lead you to this song of joy. Because when it comes to salvation, it's not about what you can offer to God, it's about what God has done for you. This week, as I was reflecting on this, I was reminded of a story I shared last year at our Good Friday service that bears repeating because I never thought that I would learn so much about grace from a story about a family who took their adopted daughter on a trip to Disney World. You see, the story is that the daughter was adopted at eight after another family who had previously adopted her dissolved their adoption. And no doubt her experience had been painful. And to add to it, this is so strange, true story. The previous adopted parents, for some reason, would only take their biological children to Disney World and they would leave their adopted daughter at home with friends. So when her new parents, years later, shared the news that they were gonna take their family on a vacation to Disney World, the strangest thing happened. For months leading up to their trip, her behavior became outrageous, rebellious, and even cruel. And one evening, when she was about to be corrected by her new parents, she looked at them and said, you're not going to take me to Disney World now, aren't you? Because you see, this little girl had learned many years before that she could not earn her way. She had tried to be good with her previous Parents and her family left her at home, and she reasoned it was because she wasn't good enough. So this time, she was living in a way that distanced her as far as she could from the family vacation. But her new dad reassured her that she was a part of the family, and so she was going. So they go, and they have a good time, and after the night, after their first day at Disney World, something beautiful happened. Back at the hotel, the the father tucked his daughter in and asked her how her first day at Disney World was and she thought for a moment and then said, Daddy, I finally got to go. But it wasn't because I was good. It's because I'm yours. And that little phrase just rings so true in my heart because friends, that points to the gospel. God's grace is not something that you and I can ever earn. Grace pursues us when we're lost. Grace, when, when we're rebels against God with dark, untrusting hearts, testing the, the limits, pushing against God, still he calls us. He loves us, not because we're good, 
but because he has made us his. And our sin is paid in full. He sees you. He fills you. He secures you, not because you are good, but because you are his through Jesus Christ, and that because of grace. So if you want to sing this song of joy with Mary, you need to be surprised by grace. So do you know, friends, that God has saved you? Do you know that this morning? None of us have a right to God's table, but we all have an invitation. Not because we're good, but because he is good. That is on offer for you, a clean heart and a fresh start. Receive his grace. Receive him as savior. And this morning, do you know that God sees you? You can bring all of your, your, your mess. You can confess your sin to him. You, you can confess your doubt and your skepticism. You can be honest about all that is going on in life. God already sees it. And you can bring it to him and ask for his grace to renew you. And do you know that in the gospel, God has served you. He is your help. And he helps you by giving you himself. It's the greatest gift you could ever have. And it is the gift that satisfies the hungry and lifts the humble. So I encourage all of you to come and respond to the Lord right now with hungry hearts, for he is longing to fill you. Let's pray right now. Father, I do pray for those of us who feel as if you've forgotten us or if you are unaware, or maybe we've believed the lie that you don't care. God, I pray that we would look to all that you've done for us in the gospel and be reminded of what you have already done. That the answer cannot be that you don't care. The answer to why certain things haven't happened in my life cannot be that you don't love us. God, I pray that we'd be reminded right now that you see us. You are mindful of our lives. And God, I pray that we would be humbled by all that you've done to, to stoop down and to lower yourself, to suffer and to lift us up. God, I pray that that would humble us and encourage us today. And I pray that we would be a reminder that nothing else in this world could save us. And that because of that truth that we would freely come and confess our sin, bring our fears and our doubts to you and that you would forgive us, cleanse us, renew us and strengthen us so that we too could have a song of joy. Would you do that now, Lord? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.